Welcome to episode 162 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Hey, welcome back to another episode. Todd, how are you doing this week? Um, swollen, um, as some people may have recognized with uh, this week's episode or this past week's episode. Uh, my wife had to do the intro and the outro of last week's episode. My, my wife, Maria, who's also an SLP, um, she loves doing that. Um, and so I've had some oral surgery. And I sound like, you know, grandpa from, I don't know, great, great grandpa who can't talk anymore. So I apologize for that. And hopefully you won't have any problems understanding me, but that's why I sound a little differently. And so hopefully um, it'll get better by the next couple of episodes. Oh, I thought you did well. Um, so I wanted to share this week my, as seen on Instagram, uh, our friend Stacy over at, not Stacy Krause, the other Stacy, Stacy <laughs> Faf. <laughs> we have two big Stacys, I feel like, in telepractice. Yeah. But at my teletherapy room, she shared some uh, blog post that was on myth busting. And she's created a little infographic, too, that you can purchase from her um teachers pay teachers store but so she has a lot of different things that were kind of the myths that people have about telepractice and um, some of the things that are actually true about it uh, there's a lot of them on there one that I wanted to pick out was people feeling like it creates more screen time for kids and right. I thought that one was interesting I even saw on a one of the Facebook groups for speech therapists lately that someone was saying that in an in-person session a parent was asking them not to have flashcards on their um iPad because that created more screen time for the child. And some people think like there there's a there's a school of thought where people are like, well, screen time is screen time. It affects their brain. It affects their eyes. Like it doesn't matter what you're doing on the screen. I don't agree with that. <laughs> and, you know, being a, a house where my husband's a technology teacher, I'm into technology and I see the use and the value out of it. And she talks about, too, the difference between passive screen time and active screen time and interactive screen time. And just that, right. you know, it, having a screen in front of you is different when you're watching Bluey, although Bluey's is great, or versus <laughs> interacting with your speech language pathologist and just kind right. of like defining that difference for parents. But I think it is something that comes up and that we have concerns with. I know even, you know, as when I was working in early intervention and trying to tell some parents some good um, apps that they could get for their kids and they would say, well, but, uh, you know, American Academy of Pediatrics says no screens at all before they're two. And I was like, yes, yes, they do. But let's be realistic here. And right. I just think that there's there's quality and quantity when you're considering screen time and that that should be another myth that's busted, that it's just another way to use a screen. Exactly. And we've, and we've talked about this a little bit. You know, if you're using it, if you're using the screen, the iPad or the phone to babysit the child, and you're doing that every day for hours, then that's probably yeah. not a good thing to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, 
But even if you like, if you have the conversation with someone at the grocery store and you need to occupy the child for 10 minutes, yeah, let them play with the phone. I don't care. Yeah. yeah. That's not going to hurt them. Yeah. But if you're engaged in a session and seeing images on a screen to facilitate speech therapy, then that's, that's the, that's, should be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they go to the extreme all the time. Yeah, I think so too. So, so we have, who do we have on? We have Irene Bettman today. Yes. Yep. Um, and do you want to tell her background? She is a, a doctoral student in Boston. And she's an SLP, and she's doing some great work with stroke patients in a stroke support group, and she's doing that all through telepractice. Great. So I'm excited to, to hear what she has to say. Hi, it's Todd Houston. I'm a co-host of Telepractice Today with my dear friend, Kim Allen. And I just wanted to take a moment and ask you a favor. You see, we at the 3C Digital Media Network, yes, and I am also the CEO of 3C, as we call it, we need you. We need you to maybe develop a webinar that we could distribute for you. Or maybe it's a course that you have in mind that you'd like to share your knowledge and skills. We would want to do that with you. We can help you distribute, produce, and distribute all of those things. We have blogs that you could do. Maybe you want to start in this whole wild world of online publishing and online media, and you want to start with a blog. We would be very happy to host that blog on our website. So if you have some ideas about blogging or a webinar or maybe a course that you'd like to offer, or maybe you have an idea for a totally new podcast, you may not know this, but we actually produce five podcasts and it's growing. And so... Who knows? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. We would love to talk to you. In fact, I would love to talk to you. I would love to showcase what you're doing, your knowledge and skills, no matter what it might look like. Course, webinar, podcast, blog, doesn't really matter. You can reach out to me at Todd at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com. That's T O D D at the number three, three C, C as in cat, digitalmedianetwork.com. And I will be in touch. Thank you for considering this. And we'll talk soon. Okay. Welcome, Irene. Will you give us a bit of a a bit of your background and how you got into the field of speech language pathology. Sure. Um, hi, Kim. Hi, uh, Todd. Thanks for having me here. So my journey with speech pathology started 
about 13 years ago, I had graduated from college. I uh, was working in a job that I didn't like very much, to be perfectly honest. Um, so I decided to quit against the advice um, of everyone I knew. And I got a job in South America. And on a whim, I went down there. And when when I was down there, I kind of, you know, had a few, wore a few hats. And um, one of those hats I had been asked by somebody in the local community, and I was down in Uruguay in Montevideo, to tutor a young man uh, in English who also had a diagnosis of dyslexia. I knew nothing about tutoring. I knew nothing about dyslexia. I knew nothing about teaching. Um, And I, you know, made this individual who had requested very well aware of that, but they insisted that I should, you know, take this on. I said, okay. And as I started working with this individual, I uh, gained an interest in, uh, in dyslexia and in teaching and kind of the intersection of those. And somehow in my research that brought me to the field of speech pathology. So I spent a year down there, came back, um, decided to apply to graduate school and ended up in Boston doing my master's at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Great. I feel like that's, I feel like a lot of people who think dyslexia, I want to, I'm interested in helping kids with dyslexia, wouldn't automatically go to speech therapy as something that would help with that. Right. Absolutely. I don't even know. You know, I think that I, um, I looked around at a few different fields. I, you know, I looked at social work, I looked at library science, I looked at education and, I'd always been interested in foreign languages and knowing that I knew nothing about speech just in reading about it, it sparked Mm -hmm. my interest. Mm -hmm. And that was that. Shadowed some speech pathologists, um, very quickly knew that I was interested in the medical side of things from shadowing. Mm -hmm. And so that helped me narrow things down a little bit. My wife... Yeah, I mentioned my wife is a speech pathologist, but she's being trained right now to work with kids with dyslexia. Okay, very interesting. So there's that Akron Children's Hospital where she is, and um, she's she's having to sort of be immersed in this because they want to develop a clinic to serve those kids. Absolutely. No, it was, you know, it became very apparent to me when I was down there that the little that I knew about teaching a foreign language, I I needed to kind of adapt things towards an individual with dyslexia. Mm-hmm. But given that I didn't know anything about dyslexia, I had to do some <laughs> research. So how did you... So, oh, go ahead, Kim. Yep, I was just going to say, so since then, where is your career gone and how did that lead you to telepractice? Sure. So I spent two years doing my master's at the MGH Institute, uh, which is uh, in Boston. And then I ended up getting a clinical fellowship at this uh, multi-level facility called the Hebrew Rehabilitation Center in uh, Roslindale, Massachusetts. And that was my first introduction to kind of the continuum of care. The reason they actually hired me for the position was because they were looking for folks who spoke Russian. 
And my parents, um, my dad is from Moscow and my mom's from Ukraine. They actually immigrated from the former Soviet Union when I was three and a half. And are they on opposite sides now? (laughs) No, we're all on we're all on one side. The whole family's on one side. Um, and it wasn't a CF position. It was just, you know, non-CF position. I applied, I told them they should hire me and they did, thankfully. And so um, I worked across the continuum of care. There was a subacute rehab floor, a few uh, long-term re- uh, long-term sniff level floors, and then mm-hmm. a long-term acute care hospital floor. So I kind of got exposure to a variety of populations. And since then, I um, I worked in an acute care hospital. Um, I've worked in an inpatient rehab, and then I did outpatient rehab. And right before March of 2020, when the pandemic hit, I was working at, I was doing both outpatient work and inpatient acute work. And so I was just the week, kind of that first week or second week in March, I was coming off of a maternity leave with my then second child, I was supposed to go back to work and the acute care facility where I was working said, hold on, <laughs> we can't have you coming back in. We need to figure out how to triage our staff. Yeah. How would you feel about doing telepractice? Yeah. And I said, oh, I have no idea. I have never done telepractice. How would yeah. you feel about me doing telepractice? <laughs> I'm willing to learn, but I'm a newbie. And that's how it started. So what did that look like at the very beginning? Was it just were you doing acute care and telepractice, just the outpatient and telepractice? What did that look like? Good question. It was just the outpatient. Okay. The inpatient side was a little more kind of touch and go. Yeah. um, Because things were rapidly evolving and they were trying to figure out – you know, what kind of uh, technology to use in the inpatient rooms, Mm -hmm. how long the exposure should be, who should go in, should it just be the nurse, should it be the nurse and the SLP, should the iPad be in the room, should the iPad be outside of the room, all of these Mm -hmm. questions. So it was just outpatient at the beginning. Yeah, that's what my sister runs a rehab unit. She's a physical therapist, but they had, even for some of their inpatient clients, they had were doing teletherapy because they only had one SLP. So if that one SLP went down, <laughs> then they had nobody. So that's the way that they did it is that they were, do, even though she was maybe like in the building, in the same building as the acute care, they were still having her stay out of the rooms so to contain any, you know, um, spread of infection and things like that. So there's a, it was it's just interesting to me to hear the different ways that we kind of hodgepodged our way through and to get everyone the care that we could during that time. Absolutely. And I think that we were lucky in the sense that um, Mass General Brigham is kind of a really large, it's huge employer of healthcare practitioners in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And so once a month or once every two months, I work at the Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital, which is a slightly smaller academic facility. Um, but once a month, or like I said, once every two months, speech pathologists across the Mass General Brigham network would get on a Zoom call and we would sort of, you know, we banded together and, and it was a large call. I mean, sometimes there were over 
a hundred speech pathologists on the call um, and talk about how practice was evolving and what we were seeing and what we were doing and um, how what we were doing differed across hospitals and Mm. sort of supported each other in that way. So that was nice. That's awesome. And, and so you went, you're now a doctoral student, right? I am. You are getting a PhD. An SLPD, a clinical Uh, doctor. Oh, clinical. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And so your capstone is doing what? Sure. So for my capstone, what I'm really interested in or what I'm working on now is uh, evaluating Satisfaction, uh, both on the clinician and the patient side, in using telepractice for stroke support groups. So in March of 2020, we know that evaluation and and treatment in speech pathology moved to the virtual world, right? Mm -hmm. Right. There were all of these ancillary services, but really kind of important services like stroke support groups. Right that were somewhat caught in limbo because patients really depended on these groups for social, emotional support, kind of um, community involvement, and they weren't sure what was going to happen. And the research shows us that not just in, um, not in speech necessarily, but across domains of medicine, Stroke support groups are really important to patients' recovery and uh, for combating feelings of isolation. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it it kind of became, what is it, like a trial by fire in seeing mm-hmm. how, yep. how this could be moved to the virtual world. Yeah. So what some of your initial findings or what, um, what did you find out in your research? Yeah, good question. We're in the statistical analysis right now, but the Reader's Digest version is that people really like it. I mean, yeah. it's a mixed bag for some folks, right? It's not right, right for some folks, like those who have a very severe um, language language disorder or maybe somebody who um, doesn't have any help at home or has a low level of or a lower level of tech literacy. Mm-hmm. But I would say for the majority of people, over 60%, they have found it a modality that improves accessibility to care, which is yeah. really important and something that we always as clinicians, you know, want to optimize. Um, they have found that um, it's it's enjoyable in the sense that not only do they get to stay in touch with folks who are in their support group, but they also have access to other support groups across across the country that they wouldn't have otherwise had access to. Mm-hmm. They um, same kind of findings as in person support groups where they feel like they're less alone. They feel like they have somebody to whom they can relate that um, they're not the only ones going through this. So overwhelmingly positive, I would say. And actually, a lot of folks prefer the the virtual modality to being in person. And when given the choice, they prefer to stay virtual. Yeah. Because they can still, if there is a rainstorm or a you know, thunderstorm outside, 
they can sign on to their group. If they have mobility issues, they can sign on to their group. If they want to save money driving, if they want mm-hmm. to save money parking, they can sign on to their group. A lot of people are dependent on caregivers to drive them. Mm-hmm. And again, that kind of eases the caregiver burden. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And I think the improving access, I think, is so interesting because um, I always think of it for rural places. And I do live in a state where kind of most of the population is along the I-15 corridor and then everywhere else is pretty rural. But even in those in more populated areas, transportation can still be an issue. Getting out of the house can still be an issue. Navigating parking, like you said, can be an issue. Um, So I think that improving the access to care is an important part that I think people kind of think, well, if it's there and it's down the street, then why can't they go? And there's lots of reasons why they might not be able to. And to your point, I know historically, telepractice was more widely used for folks who lived in rural areas. Mm -hmm. But if we also look at the literature, a lot of folks who live in urban areas, but maybe perhaps live in um, cities that have some trouble with um, infrastructure, like old crumbling sidewalks or Mm -hmm. uh, steps that lead up to multi-level houses that are in uh, like a state of disrepair, Mm -hmm. they may have trouble leaving and entering their house and they may want to minimize the amount of times that they do that. So there's another kind of accessibility piece for for people who who live not just in rural but in urban mm-hmm. areas and who also may be at the intersection of these um urban geographical uh factors that intersect with other things like m- mobility issues, caregiver support, etc. So it really comes down to no matter where the person lives, telepractice may be the best way to serve that that patient. I think so. I think that per patient preference and um, kind of like we said, that optimizing accessibility, I, I think it's a really fantastic tool that we have. I kind of say that telepractice was the silver lining mm-hmm. of the pandemic, and it finally mm-hmm. catapulted us into the 21st century. And I'm just hoping that we can stay in the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah. So through your research or own experience with um, support groups, is there anything that seems to make us a um, successful online support group? It's a multi-level answer, I would say. (laughs) Um, On the clinician side, definitely training um, not just in technology, but also in learning how to adapt materials so that they're creative, fun, enjoyable, optimizing communication. You know, I always say, um, take space, make space. And sometimes that can be harder when you have individuals with a vari- variety of kind of communication difficulties. Mm-hmm. So definitely a skilled facilitator who gains experience um, with, um, with you know, consider communication considerations, technology considerations, um, monitoring the chat, monitoring kind of the audio and the background noise that I know can be very troubling to some participants. And um, then for patients, I think just 
having some level of tech literacy or having a helper or facilitator for them to be able to sign on successfully and stay on successfully, having access to a stable internet connection and high-speed broadband internet, and hopefully having a private space. Mm -hmm. And I think that outside of that, you know, um, I have to give a little shout out here to Mike Tui from uh, Belfast, okay. Maine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a few years ago, we presented together with him and uh, folks from the Faulkner and folks from uh, Brigham and Women's on telepractice. And he is a, a real telepractice guru. And so when we were creating this presentation for ASHA, we sort of spoke to what are the competencies on the clinician side that we think people should have. Mm -hmm. And we came up with some competencies, uh, financial, legislative, clinical, mm -hmm. and otherwise. And what he said was, it's important to have telepresence, P-R-E-S-C-E-N-C. -E -E I hope I spelled that right. <laughs> Where you, it, it might not be something that you have right off the bat, but something that you as a as a as a clinician as a facilitator that you gain that kind of comfort in the virtual space. Yeah, it's kind and of those I, the soft skills like we talk about in in business kind of soft skills, but I think it applies to telepractice as well. Oh, absolutely. So how would you describe a a a meeting of the support group? What's the agenda? How does it flow? It depends on the month. Um, the individual who really runs the support group is a social worker from the hospital. And it depends. Um, sometimes we have a speaker. So we'll have a speaker maybe for 30 minutes. And it can be really anyone, as long as it as long as the speaker can provide something that's really interesting or helpful to the folks in the group. So for example, we've had a palliative care nurse practitioner. We've had a registered dietitian speaking about nutrition considerations after stroke. We've had physical therapists who have done chair yoga, virtual chair yoga, hmm. occupational therapists, really anyone that, that can be of service to the group. So we'll do, it's an hour long group. So we'll do maybe 30 minutes of that and then kind of a 30-minute free-for-all space to connect and really and, and talk about what's important. And there are other weeks, they usually meet once a month. There are other weeks where it's just an open space. Mm -hmm. And people, sometimes the conversation takes uh, a, you know a minute or two to get going. We'll have a prompt. And then sometimes we'll sit back and see... Mm -hmm which way the conversation seems to be leading. And and so how we, many how many patients do you have at, at once? It depends. Sometimes we have a really small group of five. Sometimes we have a larger group of 15. Um, there are a lot of Boston groups that have upwards of 30. Wow. That's great. And do, it is. Do their spouses or caregivers sometimes participate as well? They can. Absolutely. Everybody is welcome. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Everybody's welcome. So what's going to be the next step with your research? I know you're analyzing the data. That is a great question. Um, right. So 
<laughs> One of the reasons that I went uh, back for my doctoral degree at also mm. at the MGH Institute of Health Professions after being out for almost 10 years, and I have to give a shout out to my mentors, uh, Dr. Bridget Perry, who's the director of the program, and Dr. Megan Schleep, who's a, uh, an assistant professor in the program. One of the reasons I went back was because I wanted to become a more knowledgeable consumer of research, and I wanted to... Um, be able to conduct more research and really focus on implementation science and telepractice ignited that desire for me, right? Because I thought, oh my goodness, here is this modality that we've never tapped into that has such infinite potential. And yeah. now we're here and now we're using it. Some things we don't know, but there's a lot, some things we do know, but there's a lot that we don't know. Mm -hmm. I have so many questions and I want to get them answered. So I, I think that Ideally, future iterations of this research will focus on caregiver involvement. Mm -hmm. My particular capstone project really looked at perceptions and attitudes, kind of satisfaction, if you will, of patients and clinicians. Mm -hmm. But I think that in the telepractice world, facilitators are so important. And we yeah. just didn't include them in this study because it would have been another two years, <laughs> which I would have been happy with. But that's not how the program is set up. Yep. So hopefully we'll be able to veer that way and, and take a look at their voices. Yeah. And I think that is an area that telepractice in general, we need more research done. Did you find any like roadblocks or strategies that worked well to researching telepractice? Because we want to encourage anyone listening <laughs> and universities to make sure that that's an area that they're doing some research in. Any roadblocks, um, you know, just kind of the obvious sometimes that I learned from being a doctoral student, I had access to a lot of um, the da databases for searching, right, like PubMed or Ovid. And that was great because a lot of times a, a free PDF of the article that I needed showed up and sometimes mm -hmm. it didn't. Right. And so then I would have to either wait for the library to send it to me or would have to reach out to the authors. And I think that a lot of people would see that as a roadblock because it's another step, right? And it can be an annoying step. Like you yeah. just, you want the information that you want when you want it. But what I've also found is that reaching out to folks, people are really want to share their research and they really mm -hmm. want to share their work. And a lot of times it's not their decision to have their work behind a paywall. Yep. And so I think that if people right. knew that, um, authors really wanted to share their work, they might be more willing to reach out. That's yeah. very true. Yeah. And that with that, was it hard where we're in a, you know, kind of cutting edge new frontier for a lot of people? Was it hard to find that like kind of background research to build upon? Sometimes um, it was a learning curve for me, definitely being a very, very green researcher, I had to teach myself how to do a literature <laughs> review. And I had a lot of support. I was lucky, right? That was the, one of the points of the doctoral program. Yeah. Um, but I really had to refine my searches and kind of think about the parameters and make sure that I was capturing everything and really find a, a niche or like a, a gap that I wanted to, to be able to answer. Mm -hmm question that I wanted to be able to answer. And so maybe I was getting a lot of hits on telepractice use in rural Australia. Right. <laughs> right. 
which makes sense because that's where a lot of telepractice grew out of. Yep. Um, right. And so it might not necessarily have been 100% directly applicable to what I was looking for. Yeah. But through reading through a lot of it, I was able to take information and then, you know, look at their references and then jump to other articles. And it was, it was a journey, but one that was like a choose your own adventure, you know, one <laughs> here and then another place. Probably. Follow this road yeah. and that road. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, did you find a lot of research that was also like not necessarily in the field of speech language pathology? Because I know that there's a lot of the allied health that's maybe done some more research on telemedicine. Um, and but it can, I think, be applied to what we're doing as well. I did. I went all the way back to the 1950s, I think, when oh. that, that first documented use of telepractice in Nebraska. Nebraska, yeah. Right, right. Um, in the within the field of psychiatry, mm-hmm. um, when they when there was like a television or a, a a signal, a radio signal that was created between a psych institute. Yep. <laughs> um, and that kind of brought me to other fields of medicine, like radiology, uh, pathology, um, neurology, cardiology. And I think that some fields kind of more naturally lend themselves to using telepractice yeah. mm-hmm. synchronously. But then there are other fields that are, you know, I think more of a better fit for asynchronous use of technology, like radiology. Mm-hmm. or pathology. And this has been in practice for a long time and maybe we just don't realize it, right? Like how often I know that it's at certain skilled nursing facilities, there are radiologists who um, are sent images all the time and then they review them offsite and then they, you know, write the report and that's sent back to the facility. Right. So I think that it, although the first kind of established use was in the 1950s from what I read, Within the field of psychiatry, it has grown a lot. Um, now there's yeah. a lot of information coming out about using telepractice in the ICU, right. particularly for um, in the neuro ICU. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of exciting, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Stop me whenever I start talking too much. (laughs) You're great. I've been told that I have the gift of gab by my husband. Well, we're grateful for that on a podcast. (laughs) Yes, we are. (laughs) Well, we will will ask you 10 more questions. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Uh, Ask away. Anything you need. This is our moment of zen. Zen. Okay. So we have three different lists, A, B, and C, each having 10 questions. So which list do you want, A, B, or C? Oh, oh, this is like a choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's do A. Ooh. <clears throat> okay. So this is just get to know you a little bit better. Okay. So what's the most used app on your phone? Oh, gosh. An app app, or can it be like email? Like That's, that's an yeah, app. That's fine. Yeah, yeah it, it's definitely my email because I have my Gmail and then my work email. And I have three little kids, so I'm always checking my email <laughs> to see if there are any updates from their camps and whatnot. Definitely. PMs is tender. It's, it's, I keep telling you, <laughs> stay away. He lies. He lies. 
what's the last what's the last tv show or movie that you streamed the tinder swindler the tinder swindler <laughs> i have to be honest don't i yes, yes you got to be honest okay oh i'm blushing this uh sex in the city and just like that uh, you know in I watched the series when it first came out. It's like, let these women just go off into the sunset. I mean, why bring them back? Is my opinion. But <laughs> oh, yes. I, I know. Are you watching the you reboot or are you watching the original? No, no, no. I'm watching the reboot. And, you know, I think as I'm watching it, I'm, I'm remembering, what was it, 20 years ago? The original. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't know why I'm watching this, but I, I just can't stop. <laughs> can't look away. <laughs> I can't I just, look away. Yeah, I saw an article of a a girl, a young woman said she's 23 years old and watched all the episodes and she has much to tell these people. <laughs> I'm sure. Because she's 23 looking at what they were doing 20 years ago. Oh, gosh. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay. So what's a favorite book? My favorite book. Oh, this is a hard question. I'm a big reader. Um, although I haven't gotten to do as much as I would like to over the past two years. Kids will do that to you. <laughs> yes. Um, and and doing a doctorate <laughs> will do that to you. Yes. I love uh, um, Anna Karenina by Tolstoy, The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Uh, oh, you're going like classics. Uh, yes, yes. But truly, I'll read anything from uh, anything. I just read... Um, Anne of Green Gables with my 11-year-old daughter. And it was so fun that I went back and found like the old, old original show that was like on PBS. I remember. I remember. So good. So good. How can you not love that? Yeah. Yeah. But that was a good one to read with an 11-year-old because she was the same age as Anne when she came to live at Green Mm -hmm. Gables and she loved it. Oh, see, I'm excited. My kids are young. They're five and a half, three and a half, and eight months. And I'm excited. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, for when they get a little older and I can start reading books yeah. that I really enjoyed. So. Yep. Next question is, if you could create one law or behavior that everyone had to do, what would it be? Mm. I would say that um, to be considerate and polite when speaking to folks who have an accent. This uh, probably comes from my own experience of growing up Mm -hmm. with kids who have accents and seeing how people treated them. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, oftentimes there's a misconception that when you're speaking to somebody who has an accent, that they're they're dumb or they're stupid, right. or that they don't right. speak English well enough when it's mm-hmm. really the opposite and they speak more than one language and they've had to learn another language. And so I think just having that basic respect and, and compassion, I think would, I would like to see it. That's so interesting, too, because I think about, you know, all these people that you're like annoyed that they're working somewhere and have an accent. But if you dropped, how would that be to drop us in a different country and be like, not only do you have to like navigate your everyday here, but you have to get a job and speak in a different language while working in another job. And I think just some of that like perspective shift and putting them yourself in those shoes would help all that a lot. Very humbling. 
Yeah. Well, I, I grew up in South Carolina with a very strong accent at the time. Um, in grad school, we had um, T-shirts made it where he said, you know, where accent is not a speech disorder. <laughs> oh, I, re- I really like Southern that. accent. Yeah. Yeah. Really That's what I remember having a professor, um, Dr. Sandy Gillum, and then her husband, Ron Gillum, who has a stutter. And she says, between my thick Southern accent and his stutter, we walk into a hospital and everyone just assumes that we're dumb. And they both have PhDs mm-hmm. and are very accomplished in their fields. But yeah. Exactly. Yep. Um, next question is, who would you like to have dinner with, dead or alive? Or I mean, does anybody. it have to be a famous person? No. No. Okay. Oh, we have um, lots of grandmas. Grandma's a great answer. I was going to say, um, definitely my uh, grandparents and my great-grandparents. They um, they really helped raise me when my parents moved to this country. You know, they both had to work more than full-time. They didn't have a choice. And my grandparents, with whom I was very close, were around all the time and they are very missed. I was very close to them and my great grandparents who I just don't have a very kind of vivid memory of because Mm -hmm. one passed away before I was born. Another passed away when I was very young, but I'm told that I resemble them. So I would love to, that would be a nice dream. Uh, Great. Um, What's the scariest thing you've ever done? And you can define scary in any way you want. The scariest thing I have ever done was jump into a river in Guatemala that was moving really quickly, not my brightest moment, with a very (laughs) strong current. And I actually, and I didn't know, but like just up ahead, there was a waterfall. And I had a very, I actually needed to, they needed somebody to come in and, and swim in and pull me out of the river because I couldn't do it myself. So like from a right. movie. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I would not do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, where is the most exotic or farthest place you've been? South Africa. Hmm. Awesome. Up in there. Yes. Great country. Yep. Um, if you didn't choose your current profession, what would you like to try? Okay. Probably be, I'm thinking probably between two, Um, either nursing Hmm. or I would open a little boutique that sold books and clothes, but also had a coffee bar and it would be a community space where people could come in and find, you know, anything they wanted to read. I enjoy fashion, so cool. there's that. Very and nice. I happen to like coffee and drink lots of it. So, and books. So we're good. And books. Like um, what's a pet peeve you have? I don't like it when people walk slowly. Oh yeah, it's our people from big cities give us that answer. I feel yes. like <laughs> I think that I just like to move quickly. And so when I'm caught behind a person who walks slowly, it starts to feel like mildly infuriating to me. And so I have to tell myself that I need to take a deep breath, either walk around them or just accept the fact that not everybody walks quickly. 
My pet peeve is when you walk through a doorway following people and they stop and then everyone, you know, has to stop or, you, you know, you get off the elevator and they stand right in front of you because they don't know where to go. It's right. Like, so keep moving, like, keep moving, get out of the way. Entrances. Yeah. It yeah. drives me nuts. That's a good one. Last question. Right. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you enter the pearly gates? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. You were a good mom. Very nice. Very good. That's awesome. Well, Irene, I think you're probably a wonderful mom. And, oh, uh, thank you. And and a very good telepractitioner, I'm sure, as well. So thank you for joining us on the podcast. Um, how can people reach out to you and maybe learn more about the support groups or just want to uh, connect? Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm I'm happy to connect with anybody. You can email me at my work email, and I'll spell it out here. It's I Bretman, all lowercase I B like boy R E. T T, so double T like Tom, M-A-N at bwh.harvard.edu. I want to thank Irene for joining us on the podcast. I also want to thank her for explaining how she's doing those support groups for stroke patients through telepractice. That is really exciting work, and I've I learned a great deal from how to set those up. And thank you for joining us on the podcast. I'm still dealing with some um, oral surgery issues, so that's why I'm sounding a little strange, and I apologize for that. I hope you can understand everything. But with that, uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll be back again next week with another episode. If you don't mind, leave us that five-star review that always helps us get new listeners, and that's what we're trying to do. Until next time, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network. 